Um, while we're waiting for the slides to come up, uh, I want to thank um, the investigators that shared their slides with me. Uh, everyone I approached was very collaborative and shared slides that I can now share with you. And uh, my colleague, Dr. Gulick, who gave me some of the slides that I'm about to show. Here's my disclosures. All right, so the objectives today, um, I'm going to discuss a few uh, interesting studies related to cure of HIV. There's a lot of interest, a lot of patients, I'm sure, are approaching you about this topic. There's been some splashy press releases lately of um, promising clinical trials. So hopefully give you a framework of how to uh, think about these studies and what to expect in the future. Uh, we're going to look at some clinical trial data for the management of antiretroviral therapy. There's a couple practical things I want to share with you. And then we'll discuss some new biomedical strategies for HIV prevention, some successes and some failures. All right, we're going to start with a uh, pre-test or pre-lecture knowledge question. Which of the following statements is true? Um, Dolutegravir, an investigational integrase inhibitor, has inferior virologic efficacy as compared to routegravir. Approximately 5% of people newly infected with HIV in the U.S. acquire HIV that is resistant to one or more drugs. Three, NRTIs can be safely omitted in treatment experience patients initiating an ART regimen with more than two active drugs. And the leading approach in HIV cure clinical trials is called shock and kill. Okay. I have no comment. Okay, so HIV cure, ART, and prevention. So a few years ago, uh, the first person was cured of HIV, the so-called Berlin patient, uh, Timothy Brown is his name. Um, and what we learned from, from him and his generous contribution of uh, many bodily tissues in the years since is that we know that replication-competent HIV reservoirs can be cleared. It happened for him. That long-term virologic control can be achieved in the presence of waning HIV-specific immunity. So uh, there's no virus around, and the antibodies, or the, the immune response to the virus, fades away. And that persistent low-level detection of HIV DNA and RNA doesn't mean that uh, relapse is about to happen. So probably the, real, the, the largest story from Croy was uh, a case report of a functional cure of an HIV-infected infant. And I'm sure many of you have been asked about this by colleagues, friends, and patients. Um, so the, the, what happened was there was a 28-month-old uh, child that was born at 35 weeks gestation. It was quite a rapid delivery. And the mother had not had prenatal care, and a rapid test during the uh, delivery showed that she was infected with HIV. Um, by 30 hours of age, the baby was transferred to a referral center. And at that point, HIV DNA and RNA, just a viral load test, were obtained to assess the HIV infection of the infant. And the, the baby was positive on both of those tests. Um, but before they had that information, they started the baby on three-drug therapy, AZT, 3TC, nevirapine, 
And instead of using it at prophylactic doses, I mean, there may be pediatricians here that know more about this than I, they actually use a full therapeutic dose, a treatment dose. So here are the blood tests from the infant and the mother. Uh, and the viral load of the infant was around 20,000, and the HIV DNA test was positive. For the mother, the HIV and confirmatory Western blot were positive. The viral load was quite low, 2,400, and her CD4 count was well-preserved. So this would be someone that you would actually expect not to transmit HIV, um, but, but it did happen. And she had wild-type uh, subtype B. So then the, the baby was followed with several viral loads over the next month and the eventually became undetectable by about a month and stayed that way. However, the baby was out of care from eight, month 18 to 23, and I'm sure many of you that take care of HIV-infected infants or had a bigger practice years ago, this is unfortunately a relatively common occurrence. Um, however, on return, um, the baby came back about five months later and the caretaker said that ART had been stopped for about five or six months. Um, they drew standard uh, blood tests, and interestingly, the viral load was negative. So the, um, the baby's physician astutely said something unusual is going on here. Um, so she helped organize a intensive uh, characterization or a, uh, evaluation of the infant to understand what was happening. So the first thing was looking at HIV-specific immune responses. So the, um, there was, the Western blot and ELISA were both negative, so the standard HIV test had converted to negative. And there was no um, HIV-specific cellular immune, uh, immune responses. And in addition, they looked at immune activation, which is um, elevated in people with HIV, even people that are elite controllers. Uh, this infant's immune activation was normal. So they did a series of, um, of evaluations to look for the virus. So they looked for viral DNA in, in a variety of T cell, uh, uh, white blood cell subsets. And they found one or two tests that were slightly positive. Um, they did an ultra-sensitive, ultra-ultra-sensitive test for viral load, looking with a lower limit of one copy per mil. And one of the two tests was positive. Then they took some cells uh, from the baby and tried to um, grow out the virus, and that was negative. It was limited because there's only so much blood that you can take from an infant safely, um, so it, it wasn't the most sensitive test, but they didn't find infectious virus. So in summary, it's the first well-documented case of a functional cure in an HIV-infected child, and it suggests that if we can institute early ART in HIV-infected infants, and this infant was probably infected in utero, so uh, days to weeks before delivery, um, that if you start ART early, that we may be able to prevent the establishment of a latent reservoir and achieve cure in children. So it has pretty broad implications. It has the potential to transform how we treat HIV-exposed or HIV-infected infants worldwide. And um, there are clinical trials that hopefully will start very, very soon um, to really see if this, this finding can be confirmed in, in other infants. Um, one of the questions that I'm sure will come up is, do we actually know that the baby was infected? And so they did a variety of um, 
HLA typing to show that the baby was in fact the baby of the mother. Um, the viral load came down over a month. Um, sometimes in HIV infected infants there can be a bit of a viral load uh, that you can detect at the beginning, but this was much, much higher. So the general consensus, but there's still controversy, is that this was in fact an HIV infected infant who was able to be cured of HIV. So a pretty good success. So um, the, for the Timothy Brown and for this infant, they're very, very specific situations and it's kind of hard to replicate them. So we're gonna talk now about some clinical trial approaches that are underway. And uh, the first one uh, is a strategy, yes, that was a true statement called shock and kill. All right, so what we have here, um, you have integrated HIV DNA. Um, and this is why people, we can't cure HIV. There's DNA in the genome that can reactivate and we don't, at this point, have a way to get rid of it. So this strategy involves a um, HDAC inhibitor. So HDAC is histone deacetylase and the way I understand it is that it's proteins that keep the DNA kind of tightly coiled and so inactive. And varinostat is an FDA uh, approved drug for T-cell cutaneous lymphoma. Hopefully the oncologist is nodding, okay. And um, so it also has the property of inhibiting HDAC. And so it allows the DNA to uncoil and um, uh, RNA to be made. So uh, here you can see um, sorry, that the DNA is now um, activated. There's RNA, HIV specific RNA that's made and you have um, viral proteins on the surface and virus butting off. So when you have this HIV now exposed to the immune system, it allows the uh, immune therapy or the, the immune response to HIV to detect this infected cell and kill it. So hence the shock to wake up the HIV and the kill to kill the, um, the, the the HIV infected cells. So um, this is the leading approach. So in this study, they took 20 um, HIV infected people that were well controlled. They gave them varinostat over uh, two weeks. And their endpoint was to see if this RNA could be expressed. And they were successful. So here was the amount of RNA that they had at baseline. And on varinostat, they were able to uh, increase the RNA. And it happened very soon, uh, within eight hours after starting varinostat, and it lasted for several weeks, uh, even a few months after varinostat was stopped. So the increase in RNA was about threefold. So um, what's exciting about that, it's a proof of principle that you can reactivate HIV and in this study, the varinostat was safe. But I think that this is going to be the first HDAC inhibitor. There's actually um, uh, pharmaceutical companies are, have looked into this, and they're screening compounds, and they've actually found other HDAC inhibitors that are up to 500 times more potent. So this is going to be a pretty exciting um, strategy to watch. And if you saw the, um, the uh, press releases from, I think it was Denmark? Denmark, uh, this is the strategy that they're using. They're shocking with an HDAC inhibitor, and then they're giving, I think, therapeutic vaccination to uh, boost the immune uh, response to help kill the HIV-infected cells. 
Okay, the next CURE study that I wanted to talk about is uh, an incredibly Im impressive effort from Thailand. So what they did was they looked at HIV testing centers across the country, and they had uh, about 53,000 people that were screened or tested for HIV. They took blood samples and did pooled HIV RNA testing um, to identify people who were acutely infected, and they did this very, very quickly. And then, so within three days, they identified people with acute HIV infection. They offered them enrollment in this clinical trial, and um, in an impressive feat of um, clinical trial coordination, they were able to convince people, many of these people, to undergo procedures for sigmoid biopsy, leukophoresis, to get huge numbers of white blood cells, as well as MRIs and lumbar punctures. And then within two days later, uh, they were started on antiretroviral therapy. So about five days from an HIV test to going through those procedures to being placed on ART. So what they did was they enrolled 68 uh, participants uh, with acute HIV. So the, you can actually subdivide a, acute HIV into differing um, uh, uh, phases that I'll talk about in just a second. So what they did was they looked at FIBIG-1, 2, and 3. So FIBIG-1 means that the HIV test is negative. Uh, in this case, you can find RNA, like a viral load, but the P24 test is negative, the protein. So this is very early, within days, maybe a week of infection, uh, whereas FIBIG-2 and 3 are still uh, antibody negative, but a little bit later on. So what they found was they looked at integrated HIV DNA in the white blood cells, the latent reservoir. And what they found was that people in FIBIG-1, this is before ART, 90% of them had no detectable integrated DNA. Um, and whereas uh, it was much more common to find the integrated DNA later on. So what this means is that um, if we can find people in acute HIV, we can limit the size of the reservoir um, and we can prevent the uh, integration of HIV DNA into the white blood cells. They also looked in the, the gut and they found the same, uh, that there was no integrated HIV in the immune cells in the gut. And um, after ART, data I didn't show you, um, all of those groups had very limited um, size of the latent reservoir. So what this means is that patients who have been treated very, very early are really going to be prime candidates for cure studies. They have the smallest latent reservoir, so they'll be the ones that perhaps would be the easiest to cure. And so I'm sure we're going to see clinical trials that are really going to focus on that group. Okay, so now I'm going to move on to something uh, probably a bit more practical for our day-to-day -day clinical practice. So this is uh, uh, antiretroviral therapy. Dr. Sag is going to talk about new agents and treatment initiation and different topics. I want to bring you uh, your attention to a couple um, studies related to how we manage treatment experience patients. Um, but before I do that, I would just want to mention that the CDC updated their data about HIV drug resistance. So this is the most comprehensive assessment of HIV drug resistance in the U.S. And what they found was that about 16%, hint, not 5% in the test question, but 16% of people were um, in the U.S. Are, who are newly infected have HIV that is resistant to one or more drugs. 
Um, so most people, fortunately, it's one class resistant, 14% one class resistant, and a much smaller number with two or three or more extensive resistance. And they, there's a hint that it might be getting slightly worse, but I think we're all heartened to know that it's not getting incredibly worse, that the numbers have been around 10 to 15% you know, for the last five years or so. So the, I, I would interpret this as relatively good news that the, that the transmission of drug resistance is stable. Okay, so I want to draw your attention to the options study. So this was a study that was done by the AIDS Clinical Trials Group. Uh, we at Cornell and other ACTU sites around town participated in. So this was a study looking at people starting um, a new antiretroviral therapy. So eligible people were, had uh, drug resistance to at least two or three drug classes and were highly treatment experienced. And they got um, comprehensive testing to identify the best regimen to uh, treat their HIV. Um, and the, the clinical trial randomized them to starting this uh, new regimen. So a lot of people started raltegravir for the first time, maraviroc, etrovirine. This is when these drugs were relatively new. And the randomization was to either add NRTIs or omit them. So the rationale for this is all of the drug studies that approve raltegravir, etrovirine, for the most part, everyone has been on NRTIs. Um, but often, the NRTIs are not fully active. There's lots of other options. So this study was really trying to address whether it was necessary to continue people on um, NRTIs. And here's some baseline characteristics to um, about half the people had R5 virus, and about 20% had used uh, infubertite or integrase inhibitor in the past. So this was a very, very highly treatment experienced group. Okay, so as far as the background regimen, um, most people chose raltegravir, darunavir, ritonavir, and etrovirine. And then next most common was raltegravir, darunavir, ritonavir, and maraviroc. Um, and again, people had to have at least two fully active drugs to be eligible for randomization. And the NRTIs are no surprise. Most people chose tenofovir, FTC. Some people added AZT on top of that. And what they found was that, for the most part, both arms did the same, that omitting NRTIs was not inferior to um, adding them. Uh, so the primary endpoint was regimen failure. Um, I have a bit more easier time interpreting the virologic failure, which is uh, uh, viral load detectable, I think, after week 48 or so. And um, they were the same between the two groups. So that was reassuring that we perhaps don't have to continue NRTIs, which I think we do just because we've always done it. And this suggests that they might be able to be admitted, which potentially could save save money, prevent some toxicities. Um, so uh, I think what we have to, we'll talk about that in one second. Okay. The one thing that I think is going to need some explanation in this study what, were that the there were six deaths in um, the people randomized to NRTIs. And you can, the causes of death are there, but they're kind of all over the place. Heart failure, infection, renal failure, sepsis, PML, and so forth. But there were no deaths in the arms that omitted NRTIs. And it was statistically significantly different, but the, the investigators had, you know, did not expect this. So 
Um, I think this will have to be investigated further. And so in this population, it suggests that NRTIs can be safely omitted without com compromising regimen failure and the potential benefits of, of omitting NRTIs are reduced pill burden and cost. And uh, these results should be considered when, when starting new regimens for treatment experience patients. I think probably the, what it doesn't address directly is what do we do for people that are already on NRTIs and these types of regimen? Is it necessary to continue them? So I've discussed this with a few patients and most have opted to kind of stop to, um, and with careful monitoring to, for the potential benefits. Okay, the next thing I want to talk about is uh, uh, dolutegravir, an in investigational integrase inhibitor. Dr. Sagal talked about the use of this drug for treatment-naive patients. This was for treatment-experienced patients. So um, it was people who had failed prior regimens, and they picked two ART drugs to use, and then they were randomized to either add a third drug of dolutegravir or raltegravir, and they were followed over time. So what they found was that dolutegravir led to greater virologic suppression than raltegravir through uh, 24 weeks. And both, both of these drugs were extremely well tolerated as we would expect, but there was 79% were undetectable at 24 weeks versus 70. Um, and interestingly, um, the, there were fewer patients in dolutegravir who had virologic failure as compared to raltegravir. And so among the people who had virologic failure, they did uh, integrase genotypes to look at the emergence of resistance. And what they found was that there were two subjects on dolutegravir who had new mutations, but they didn't really seem to confer much resistance, as opposed to nine patients on raltegravir um, who, uh, who failed, who did develop um, resistance mutations. So what this uh, reminds me of is uh, unboosted protease inhibitors versus boosted protease inhibitors. So this has a lot of nice qualities. It's once daily, um, the low emergence of resistance. Um, so I think it'll be a nice option to have uh, for our patients once it's approved. So now we're going to talk about HIV prevention. So we, the faculty was curious and we wanted to ask you this. Um, have you been approached by patients asking for PrEP? I realize that many of you primarily see HIV-infected patients, but you must uh, come into contact with their partners. Um, so please answer. Uh, no, number one. Yes, MSM only. Yes, women only. Yes, active intravenous drug users only. Or yes, from multiple uh, groups at risk for HIV. Interesting. So um, about close to half of you have been approached by patients about this um, and from multiple risk groups, which is interesting. Okay, and then have you ever prescribed PrEP? Yes or no? No, so about a quarter of people, interestingly, so people have been approached by PrEP, perhaps they weren't really at, um, at risk for HIV or weren't appropriate, but 
it's interesting. This is actually higher than I expected. I, I um, really don't meet many providers that have actually prescribed PrEP. Okay. Um, so in a shameless plug, since Dr. Volberding started this, Valerie, raise her hand. So we have uh, an, a study conducted by the HIV Prevention Trials Network looking at um, different PrEP regimens and the safety and tolerability. So if you have any potential participants or any ideas of where we can recruit especially at-risk HIV negative women, please, please talk to her at the, the break. Um, so the big PrEP story of the uh, CROI was the Boyce study. So this was an ambitious large study that randomized 5,000 HIV infected women in Africa um, to one of uh, five different arms, oral PrEP with tenofovir FTC, oral tenofovir or placebo, or vaginal tenofovir gel or placebo, and they had monthly visits. The primary endpoint was HIV infections. So it was a young group, uh, half were under age 25, 20% were married. They were required to be on contraception to be in the trial. Interestingly, um, about 17 to 18% of the study population reported receptive anal sex in the last three months. And to my knowledge, this really hasn't been described very well in Africa. Um, so what they found, unfortunately, was that there was absolutely no difference between the arms, that the HIV infection rates were very similar for all five of the arms. Um, and so what was interesting is that they, they looked at the drug levels at the end of the study to try to understand um, how the adherence was. The self-reported adherence was over 95%. Every woman reported that she was taking the drug or gel. And so they looked at the percent of samples that had tenofovir detected, and only 30% of samples on average had any tenofovir detected. We're not talking about optimal drug levels. We're talking about detectable at all. And so about 50 to 60% of the women um, had no tenofovir detected at any study visit. So not only was the adherence bad, it was just astronomically bad. And so it, it, it really becomes difficult to interpret. It really tells us nothing about the efficacy of these if you take it, but it tells us a tremendous amount about how, uh, about the challenges of implementing PrEP um, to, to prevent HIV infection. So to put it in context with other PrEP studies, um, the adherence was less than 30%, um, similar to the FEMPREP study, which also failed. And if you look at the other studies uh, that were more successful, they had much higher rates of adherence. So if you're going to prescribe PrEP, um, you're really going to have to, to, to work on adherence and use some of the strategies that we've used for HIV-infected patients or or develop more appropriate strategies for HIV uninfected people to really enhance their adherence to PrEP. Um, so with that, uh, right in the same session, there were discussions of ways to, that essentially would help get around this. And so one of the exciting studies was of an in, uh, injectable long-acting integrase inhibitor. It sort of uh, works similar to dolutegravir, um, and they used nanotech technology to uh, help make it long-acting, and it also has a very long half-life. And so the half-life was between 20 and 50 days. So this really supports monthly or even quarterly dosing, uh, potentially for PrEP. 
And um, so the study was injecting the integrase inhibitor versus a placebo in rhesus macaques. And the results, I don't think, could be any better. No macaques that were injected with the integrase inhibitor uh, were infected with HIV as compared to all of the uh, macaques that received placebo. So this is extremely promising. Whether these three monthly injections would be tolerable or acceptable, we don't know. I would point out in the VOICE study that most of the women were on Q3 month injectable Depo-Provera. So perhaps it would be an acceptable strategy. Uh, there was also a study of uh, intravaginal ring for pre-exposure prophylaxis that contains tenofovir, a novel delivery system. So the ring can be left in place for um, quite some time. And the, uh, again, it was a macaque study, um, sorry, that where none of the six macaques with the tenofovir rings were infected as compared to 11 of 12 without the rings after a median of four exposures. And the rings were well-retained and well-tolerated. So again, another promising long-acting strategy uh, for pre-exposure prophylaxis. So in conclusion, the HIV cure agenda is really robust, and there's clinical trials underway. And uh, we learned that latent HIV can be reactivated. Again, that's the shock. And um, we learned that very early ART may limit the size of the latent reservoir. And we now have a second person cured of HIV, at least we hope. Um, and I should add that at the time of the presentation, it was about six to eight months later. Um, so the, the infant was out to about uh, age 30 months to 32 months and still HIV uninfected. Um, ART, we have new agents. Uh, tenofovir alafenamide that Dr. Uh, Sag will discuss, and dolutegravir. And remember, NRTIs may not be needed if you have two to three fully active drugs in the background regimen. And prevention, PrEP adherence is critical to, to the success. And I think these long-acting preparations are really exciting and have the, the potential to really transform uh, our biomedical approaches to HIV prevention. Okay, and with that, uh, we'll do our... Uh, the um, post-tests. So again, which of the following statements is true? Dolutegravir has inferior virologic efficacy compared to raltegravir. Approximately 5% of people newly infected with HIV or uh, acquire HIV that's resistant to one or more drugs. NRTIs can be safely omitted in treatment experience patients. And the leading approach to HIV uh, cure is called shock and kill. <laughs> Oh my God, Donna's going to kill me. Okay. Um, well, uh, I would say 95% of you were correct because and in my uh, haste to change the questions at the very last minute, I gave you two true answers. So both three and four were true. Um, so I apologize for any internal conflict if you had to choose between the two. All right, so we will take questions. Relax. Relax. God, questions already. That's great. Um, I thought I was going to have to ask the first question myself, which I'll do. Um, so I was, I'm, I'm curious, um, any sense when we're going to start hearing some uh, uh, reports on adherence in 
the real world to prep. Um, I think the real question is, which of these trial experiences com comes closest to what we're going to see in our own patients? Well, I mean, I think it's really varied from population to population. Um, if you, there's the most data in men who have sex with men. And if, uh, if you look at the IPREX study in US MSM, they had really excellent uh, rates of adherence. So I think in some populations, we're doing pretty well. Um, the, I think one of the issues is that we haven't really had, there's not a lot of uh, data from people getting open label pre-exposure prophylaxis. So I know that there's demonstration projects for pre-exposure prophylaxis. I believe there's one at Cal and Lord locally. Um, but I think we're going to really need to see those real world examples to really understand how people are using it um, you know, when just prescribed by a provider. I don't think we really have that data. And there's very few well-developed PrEP programs that I know of. Um, question about acute HIV infection. Uh, if we find uh, an acutely infected person here in New York, um, where could we send them for a clinical trial, either in New York or in New Jersey? Do you have any suggestions? Um, I don't know of clinical trials right now that are open for people acutely infected with HIV. Um, I know at the Aaron Diamond, they've historically had lots of studies, but I just don't know right now if they have anything open. Um, certainly, you can contact um, the various clinical trials unit um, at Cornell or NYU or Columbia or the different places around town to see if there are trials open. You can go to clinicaltrials.gov and just type in acute HIV and New York and see what you find. And then lastly, I wouldn't be afraid to just, if you feel that the person can be adherent, to really think about just writing a prescription and putting them on ART um, yourself. You don't necessarily need to do it in a clinical trial, in my opinion. And let me just extend that question then. Would you, at this point, start an acute infection on AR, uh, ART? I would. I, I think that the, in the US, the guidelines have swung earlier, earlier, earlier. Um, there's really potential benefits to starting early, preserving, preventing seeding of the latent reservoir, preventing some of the gut depletion of CD4 cells. So I, me, personally, I don't think that there's equipoise. I would just start them early. The, um, there's quite one question for me about the program. I guess it's a disadvantage of having only an emailed uh, uh, agenda. So the person wants to know when lunch is. Uh, <laughs> Lunch is at 12.05. Um, and the that hurts a little bit. <laughs> and the question is then the rest of the presentations this morning, um, uh, I'll announce the, those as we go uh, along. But um, there's a change. Mike Sag will give, uh, or yes, Mike Sag will give the next one, followed by Vicki Cargill. Um, and Mike is getting poised on stage. Is that stage right? Stage left? OK. <laughs> um, what about a, a woman who uh, has an HIV-infected partner, uh, wants to become pregnant? Would you prescribe PrEP in, uh, in that case? Um, so we, we don't really know if one partner is undetectable if PrEP is really necessary. I think it's controversial. I think if she's be trying to become pregnant, and this is a relatively short-term endeavor, endeavor, hopefully, uh, over three, three months to a year, then I think you probably would add PrEP. 
Um, I don't know that I would recommend PrEP indefinitely over the length of their relationship, but in that, um, especially if they, uh, you know, if they weren't using, plan not planning to use condoms for the long term. But if it's just a short term process, I would use PrEP. Um, here's an interesting question. In the voice study, uh, was there any analysis of women who had uh, uh, tenofovir in their blood? Um, so in those patients, maybe a small number, but in those people, was there any evidence of PrEP benefit? I think there was a suggestion. I think it was just limited by the really low numbers. But um, the, the problem with that is you, you can't, it's hard to pick out the control group um, of, of women that were poorly adherent to the placebo. So it's a little bit challenging to, to pick out. But I believe that there was suggestion of benefit with their, if there were some drug levels. Certainly other studies in similar populations have found that. So another voice uh, question. Um, the questioner is uh, concerned about the low adherence rate and wonders about how the study was communicated. Was it communicated in a, in a culturally kind of appropriate and sensitive way? Is that, um, did it fail for that reason? Um, I mean, you know, knowing the investigators, um, and they had uh, many African investigators as well, I think that it was delivered in a very culturally appropriate way. I think that the, the, the theme that's emerging is that the women, despite being in this study to prevent HIV infection, didn't view themselves at risk. And so uh, the women who did not view themselves at risk, I think, were the ones that really had the, the lowest adherence. So I guess what's challenging to me is why did those women enroll in the study if they really didn't think that they needed to be enrolled? And I think that's one thing that still has to be sorted out. Couple questions about the uh, uh, acute infection um, uh, Aronorovich study, mm -hmm. however it's pronounced. Uh, what was the cutoff or criteria for acute infection? And uh, in, a, in a kind of in a, in, again in a clinical setting, how do we identify acutely infected people? Um, so the cutoff would have been whether their uh, ELISA was positive, if their HIV antibody was positive. That was the cutoff that they used. And then that the people who were antibody negative, that they were divided into those different stages. Um, so clinically, you would look for, most often you would look for symptoms, so fever, sore throat, rash, the typical symptoms of acute HIV. I think um, other areas of the country have started doing pooled HIV RNA analysis to, um, to look for acute uh, HIV. Um, and lastly, there's fourth generation ELISAs. So they look for antibodies as well as P24 antigen. That wouldn't pick up all of the patients that they presented here, but it would pick up some of those two and three stages. So those are the options for picking up acute HIV. The main thing is just to remember it and think about it. Um, that's, you have to do that to diagnose it. Right. Um, we, as usual, have more, many more questions than we have time to uh, go into, but I uh, want to thank Tim for doing a great talk. Thank you, Tim.